Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Gustavo Gutierrez Suarez, one of the hosts of New Books in Film, a podcast series of the New Books Network. Today, we are here with Dr. Ryan Watson. He is Associate Professor of Film and Media Studies at Misericordia University in Pennsylvania, USA. Hello, Dr. Watson, and welcome to New Books in Film. Hello, Gustavo. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for being here and talking to us about the book you um, recently published, Radical Documentary and Global Crisis, Militant Evidence in the Digital Age, published by Indiana University Press in 2022. I'm obviously more than happy uh, to have this interview and thus offer our audience a close outlook to this outstanding, insightful book. Before we uh, start to talk about the book itself, uh, Professor uh, Watson, could you please tell us a bit about your academic life and the work um, you have been doing um, previous to the publication of the book? Uh, sure. Um, so I, uh, as, as you mentioned, I'm an associate professor at uh, Misericordia, um, and that's where I've been for my, my whole uh, teaching career. Um, I, uh, after I finished my PhD in 2015, uh, I started there as an assistant professor. Um, I did my PhD in film studies at the University of Iowa, um, a master's at the University of Chicago, and then a, a bachelor's at uh, Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Um, in English literature. Um, and I came to this topic um, while I was in grad school. Um, I've always been interested in documentary, um, but particularly interested in, I started to think in grad school, particularly how documentary could could and does have an effect on the world and why people, um, particularly amateurs, activists, and artists are continue to make documentary images and media, particularly in, in places of conflict. And when I was in grad school, um, I watched, uh, or I bought the DVD of uh, James Longley's film, Iraq and Fragments. Um, and there was two discs in the DVD. There was his film and then there was a bonus disc. And on the bonus disc, they included films from the Independent Film and Television College in Baghdad, Iraq. And these were amateur films made by students that were living through the, the American occupation and the war. And I was really struck by them. And I started to think about more broadly um, art and activism and amateur uh, media being made in, in conflict zones and its importance. Um, and that's what kind of led me uh, to write a dissertation looking at the history of, of, of radical documentary and a little bit of the current stuff. And then the book um, drew on a lot of that history and then looked at a lot of different current cases. Now, um, how did you become interested in this particular theme? Um, and how did you start to, to work on this book? How did you start to, to write uh, the book? 
Could you please uh, tell us about the genesis and the process behind it? Sure. Um, so it's, it's based on the dissertation uh, that I wrote uh, for my PhD. Um, and in that dissertation, um, as I was saying, I, you know, I looked at uh, the, the history and the development of radical documentary. Um, and so um, that looked particularly um, in Europe with uh, Joris Evans, uh, Jean Vigo, um, and then in Russia with Viga Veritov and Esther Shub. And then, you know, into the that's in the 1920s and 30s, into the 1960s in, in, in uh, South America with the development of third cinema. Um, and so I, I explored a lot of that history and I really wanted to know kind of how the people in those various historical circumstances thought about their documentary practice. Like what were they trying to accomplish with it? And one of the interesting things that I found in the historical research was that no matter where you looked in the world, whether it be uh, uh, Chile or Argentina or France or the Netherlands, that the impulses were very similar, that people um, wanted to uh, have material effects on the political, social, cultural situations, economic situations in their countries. And um, some of them thought that they could do that through uh, film, through film screenings, through documentary, through reviewing the world. And I always thought, you know, that's a, that's a fascinating impulse. And one of the things that they, particularly Ziga Vertov talks about is, you know, these, these wishes for more cameras, for faster speeds, for more people filming, for the ability to be able to share images, right? And so I thought to myself, you know, after 9-11, we're living in this world of, of digital abundance where most of us have cell phones with cameras on them, all billions of people around the world. All of these wishes have come true, right? Uh, that people are, are able to record Yet, we still have very similar problems, if not worse problems. And I was curious, you know, how do people now take up this legacy and transform it? And how are they having real material impacts on, you know, on people's lives or, you know, transforming um, the way that they're represented in media? Um, a lot of different impulses that we see in the post 9-11 world. Um, but we... I became interested in, um, you know, some of the, the sort of hotspots after 9-11. So the book looks at uh, the Iraq War, uh, which is, you know, one of the first conflicts, a major conflict after 9-11, after the Afghanistan War had started. Um, you know, also looking at uh, recent conflicts such as uh, Syria, um, the, the ongoing civil war and war going since 2011, longer standing conflicts such as the occupation um, of Palestine um, and thinking about how these how the representation of these conflicts is uh, transformed by people with cell phone cameras, uh, amateurs, activists and artists. Now, um, you begin the, um, your book uh, by talking about um, a documentary, a short documentary called uh, Rick right from um, 2012 and and about this um, anonymous Syrian filmmaking collective called Abundanara Abundadara correct so uh, wh why why uh, was it important to you uh, to begin your book uh, with this um, with this uh, talking about this uh, short documentary and this a filmmaking collective from Syria. Um, I, you know, I think I think that was interesting on on a number of levels. So um, Abu Nadara uh, in Arabic translates it into English as the the man with glasses, so the you know the person who's able to see. Um, and they were a filmmaking, an anonymous filmmaking collective um, that started um, right around uh, 2011, early 2011. Um, to document the, the revolution and civil war that was then emerging and has now been ongoing um, for 11 years. And what they wanted to do, um, they wanted to do a number of things. Um, chief among those was um, to create a sort of a, a dialogue and a representation of Syria to other Syrians um, because the conflict is, is very, you know, sectarian and, and very... Uh, you know, people people have very uh, uh, strong sides that they're on, 
and they wanted to kind of break down um, some of those barriers and and show um, sort of the the everydayness and commonality among Syrians. But they also wanted to um, use these films as sort of uh, they call them sniper shots. Um, against the regime of Bashar al-Assad um, and the propaganda uh, through his, his sort of grip on the media, but also for Western audiences and, and non, non-Syrian audiences that only receive the conflict through sort of brutal images in mainstream media. And they wanted to uh, restore the dignity of the Syrian people, that they are not just you know, victims or, or passive observers to uh, horrible things going on, that they are fighting and living and are real, you know, breathing full people um, and not just, uh, you know, a casualty on television. And so restoring the idea of, of sort of humanity um, to, to the people of Syria through, through documentary, I thought was a really important uh, effort on their part. Um, but the reason I began the book with it was that um, the film, uh, the short film Hama 1982, um, references an uprising um, in Hama, Syria, that had happened uh, in 1982 with Hafez al-Assad, Bashar's father, um, who cracked down on uh, members of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, who were defying him. And that is seen as a a sort of a a defining event in Syria uh, as, you you know, uh, for people who are against the the Assad regime um, as, you know, part uh, as a longstanding example of, of, of oppression. And so their point, though, is that in 1982, there were no cameras there to capture what happened. So it just became sort of a legend, a story, stories that were passed amongst families and friends. Now we see, you know, a hard visible video evidence of, of what's happening. And um, the problem is, and, and the reason I start the book with that is, we have all of this abundance of evidence. And as I mentioned before, things don't seem to be changing. And they're very aware of this. Um, there's a there's another film I talk about shortly after that um, from uh, from a film called Media Kill. Um, and the man says, you know, uh, the documented human rights violations are enough to bring down, you know, many regimes. You know, how much is enough? Isn't that enough? And so Abu Nadar is very very uh, aware of you know how they are represented and what representation means when there are cameras everywhere. Um, and I think that the idea that there are cameras available now in 1982 shows us very different terrain that we're operating on in terms of the representation of war and global crises. Now, um, I, am go- I am going to uh, quote um, a passage from the introduction. Um, in Radical Documentary and Global Crisis, the analysis of both over-mediated global crises, such as the Iraq war, the occupation of Palestine, and the recent war in Syria, and under-mediated ones, such as May's incarceration in the United States and child soldier conscription in the Democratic Republic of Congo, are approached from a micro-historical perspective privileging the images and testimonies produced by on-the-ground amateurs, artists, activists, and ordinary citizens who bear the brunt of the many detrimental effects of this crisis. Um, Could you please um, elaborate um, on, on, on this passage, please? Sure. Um, and I think, yeah, that's an, uh, an important uh, passage to mention um, because we've been talking about how, you know, there's cameras everywhere and this idea of over-mediation, that we have this overabundance of evidence. And that's definitely true in certain crises, like in Syria, which I would say is hyper-mediated, over-mediated. Um, but there are many uh, instances in the contemporary world, despite all of this, the cameras and the ability to record where we don't see the horrible things that are going on. So um, you mentioned um, in a quote, uh, mass incarceration in the United States. I mean, um, I talk in the book um, later, uh, Sharon Daniel uh, is in, goes into prison in California to make uh, an interactive documentary 
and faces all sorts of restrictions about how she can record and interact with the inmates and how they are able to have any sort of communication with the outside world. And so, you know, we think, you know, cameras are everywhere. We must know everything that goes on. If, it, if it's bad, somebody must be recording it. But sometimes you can't record it, right? Um, and so prison would be an example of that. Um, in the Congo, you know, child soldiers, um, you know, that there was some evidence um, taken, but mainly that that happened um, kind of um, away from the view of parents and others. Um, and that is, I think, an important thing to think about in this age of cameras everywhere is that there's a lot we don't see as well. Um, and then the second part of that um, about amateur, uh, micro historical perspective um, from amateurs, activists and artists, I think that's really important because um, we very we very rarely get the perspective of the people affected by policies, affected by wars, affected by occupations. Um, the discourse is usually at a very high level about you know what this country is going to do to that country or you know sanctions and all of these types of things. We very rarely hear about how that actually affects people. And you know going back to the impetus for writing the book, you know watching the films from the Independent Film and Television College. You know, you're struck by the, the ordinariness of, of the films and the people um, that, you know, it breaks down any sort of barriers where, you know, you talk about um, uh, people, uh, those are the Iraqi people, right? And then when you watch the videos, they have, you know, names and full lives and, uh, you know, the, the ability to empathize with, with uh, everyday people, I think is something that the mainstream media um, often, you know, uh, does not give us that chance. And these films kind of break down uh, that, those sort of barriers as well. Uh, but I think a micro-historical perspective is, is very much needed um, to give us, um, you know, an idea of what the effects are of these crises. Now, um, how uh, should we um, understand the notion of militant evidence? So militant evidence, um, I think about it in, in two ways. Um, it's sort of both what is accumulated and then how it's deployed. And it takes off of, um, from the idea um, popular in, in the field of documentary studies within film and media studies of visible evidence, um, which is a term coined um, in the late 1990s um, uh, in the, uh, by Jane Gaines and Michael Renoff. Um, and became a, a book series and a conference. Um, and it, it came from the idea of the Rodney King uh, trial and, and uh, tape um, that, uh, you know, Reginald Denny had, had captured uh, the beating of Rodney King in 1991. And um, that, that evidence then circulated and, you know, people were outraged by it, um, but it wasn't enough to convict the officers uh, at the time. And, you know, it showed the idea that, you know, this, this, this visible evidence can be very powerful, but that it's open to interpretation. It has this sort of interpretive uh, uh, instability. And with militant evidence, what I wanted to think about was the accumulative effects of visible evidence. So what happens when, when you have lots of different uh, forms of visible evidence around one particular event or, or uh, war, occupation, or crises? And um, then how are people deploying that evidence for, uh, you know, various reasons, whether that be, uh, well, we can talk in other chapters about sort of, you know, legal policy uh, avenues or the more sort of affective avenues of, of moving people, getting people into movements and, and, and uh, feeling uh, political uh, feelings. Um, but militant evidence is the idea of sort of an unyielding uh, capture and and deployment of visible evidence um, in pursuit of, of radical political, uh, social, and cultural goals. And when I use the word radical, I'm meaning that in a, a left uh, sense of the, of the term, um, that, uh, you know, a politically radical in the left uh, sense of, of radicality, um, but also radicality in the sense of, of, of uh, centering humanity and micro-histories. Now, um, there's a, um, 
an important passage in, in the introduction of, of your book um, where um, you talk about uh, radical documentary history and you talk about uh, some qualities in this um, radical documentary. You talk um, about um, the, this uh, radical documentary as tool, but also as a weapon, as witness, as evidence. And you mentioned um, a, a genealogy uh, of, 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 of great documentary documentalists uh, such as um, Santiago Álvarez, Joris Evans, um, also Jean Vigo. Um, could you please uh, explain uh, um, about uh, this um, radical documentary history as tool, as weapon, as witness, as, and as evidence, please? Sure. Um, and so it's, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting and, and complex history that has a lot of interrelationships, um, a lot of people uh, uh, collaborating with one another. And um, one, of the, one of the things uh, in the book that you know, I wished I could have done more of was, was talk more about the history. I had to be selective in kind of what I, what I chose to talk about. But I wanted to give you know, a, a broad enough sweep, but you know, there's, there's entire continents I don't talk about. Um, but I wanted to give uh, basically a, a broad sort of uh, historical sweep um, of of sort of the the major pivot points um, in in radical documentary. So the first is the interwar uh, modernist avant-garde in Europe and Russia, uh, and that, as you mentioned, you know, encompasses Jean Vigo, Viga Veritat, Esther Shub, Evans, in the U.S. That's the Film and uh, Photo League. Um, and that is sort of this this idea of you know cine club uh, screenings, uh, lots of personal exchanges between um, the groups, um, and that was you know going up until World War II. Um, and so there's there's a an art historical component to it. The modernist avant garde is sort of the launching point in in Europe and, and Russia um, for this this focus more on on social and political documentary. Um, Vigo writes in 1930 uh, towards the social cinema. Uh, Veritas Man with Movie Camera comes out in 1929. So we're talking about you know, contemporaries who are, who are aware of one another. Uh, Veritas' uh, brother uh, worked with, with Vigo uh, later in his career. Um, so you know, we're talking of people who are very well aware of, 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 of each other's work um, and, and I think kind of fuels um, each other. Um, Veritas interesting because I think you know he's he he talks. There's both the, the art and sort of evidence component um, of of using documentary, and I, I think we see in in the U.S. a much more sort of evidence based uh, use of documentary with the Film and Photo League. Um, you know, uh, using uh, evidence or uh, showing uh, you know marches and union activity and trying to uh, drum up support. Um, for, for those types of things, and also uh, counter uh, U.S. capitalist propaganda. Um, after the war, after World War II, um, is where we see the emergence of, of the new left in Europe, um, in North America, and also this this broader focus on on the third world. So you mentioned Santiago Alvarez in Cuba. Um, we could also talk about uh, you know uh, uh, Solana thing and Hitino in uh, in Argentina. Um, and uh, in Latin America, and, and, and in other movements in Latin America, then we have Chris Marker in the Left Bank Group in France, the U.S. Uh, newsreel, uh, the U.S. Collective Newsreel. Um, and what we see with those groups is um, a turn from more doctrinal Marxist and socialist movements. Um, that were premised on class struggle and labor unionization to broader global issues, uh, uh, looking at race, gender, free speech, anti-war sentiment, um, anti-capitalist, anti-capitalism, uh, anti-imperialism. Um, sort of aligned with this, with this, this shift of political, uh, this political shift in the 60s, we also have a technological shift, which is important, that uh, cameras are becoming smaller and being able to, uh, you know, we have the Cinema Verite movement, direct cinema, um, cameras are smaller and more portable. Um, and we see going into the 70s and 80s, this, this trend of, of sort of more personalization um, of, um, of uh, political uh, uh, 
activist video. Um, and uh, this is something uh, Patricia uh, Ofterhide calls a first person filmmaking, um, where, you know, they, they sort of impact the social and personal impact of political issues. Um, it's kind of seen, so we see this, say, in the, in the AIDS activist movement um, with uh, uh, Diva TV. Um, and what I'd say is with all of these, uh, with all of these uh, sort of historical uh, instances, documentary is consistently used as a tool or a weapon. Um, and the way it's used as a tool or weapon is through witnessing and through the production of various forms of evidence. Um, and so we had talked about Rodney King earlier. As we get into into the '90s, you know, this this turn to to visible evidence um, becomes uh, something that you know dominates documentary studies, and I think you know is even more important now um, in the post 9/11 period. Now, um, let's talk about um, each of the four chapters uh, of the book. Um, the book contains um, four parts. The first part is entitled Digital Active Witnesses and the Limits of Visible Evidence. The second part is um, Prisons, Palestine and Interactive Documentary. Uh, part three, Material Counter Archives uh, in Iraq. And four, Syria and Abu Nadara. Um, what, what are the main uh, ideas and contributions uh, in the first uh, part, digital active witnesses and the limits of visible evidence? Um, so I'd say in the main contributions from that chapter, and that chapter looks at um, the uh, the work of two uh, human rights uh, video, uh, two, two human rights organizations that use uh, video advocacy. Um, that's sort of a main tool. And uh, one is uh, Bitsalem, um, the Israeli organization, and the other is Witness, uh, based in, in New York, um, which is a, a global uh, human rights uh, organization. And what I'm looking at in that chapter, uh, of, and I talk about this term, uh, the digital active witness, which is basically any person um, who intervenes in their world by you know, recording um, you know, direct evidence of something or giving their testimony about something that they have seen. And so um, with, in, in Bitsalem's case, um, they, they did a, a camera distribution project uh, with Palestinians um, in, uh, in the West Bank. Um, and they uh, basically um, you know, gave them cameras and said, you know, document your everyday life. This became a much, a much larger project. Um, and um, you know they were recording uh, uh, violations by police and IDF forces, um, just basically the routine stuff that they they deal with every day, um, and that became a much bigger part of Bitsalem's um, uh, work was um, obtaining video evidence, uh, contextualizing it, using it um, in uh, in various uh, you know uh, legal cases, uh, policy discussions. Um, and then in um, in um, the case of, of witness, um, in, they worked with a, uh, with a, a partner in the, in the Democratic Republic of Congo to fight a child soldier uh, conscription. Um, and they their their sort of uh, use of evidence was twofold. Uh, they made a video in partnership um, with the group on the ground um, to uh, show to villagers around uh, the DRC um, in regions that were. Uh, getting uh, uh, soldiers, child soldiers conscripted at a very high rate just to kind of educate parents as to what exactly was happening because parents, um, you know, being prominent, were being given money and being told one thing and the, the kids were being taken and, and given guns and fighting and parents were not always aware of what was going on. And so this is just sort of educational and actually worked to uh, lower the percentage, uh, much lower of, of children that were getting conscripted after this educational effort. They also made another video that was uh, targeted at the International Criminal Court and policymakers um, in order to launch um, a war crimes trial, which ended up happening. Um, and in both of these cases, um, I talk about this term in the chapter, uh, the idea of effective radicality. So one of the, one of the things in the book that I want to do is, is both complicate the idea of radicality, but also think about 
how it manifests itself. Um, and so one is, is this idea I call effective radicality, where um, we think about how militant evidence is used in official settings, such as uh, uh, legal in the legal system the courts um, government bodies um, international bodies um, and you know we don't normally think of radicality as happening within those sort of systemic structures um, but what i uh, what i talk about in in the book um, in that chapter is uh, a notion um, from the uh the theorist um Sayla Benavid, um a political theorist and she talks about uh, the the jurist generative effects of um, of of this sort of um, uh, evidence uh, of this sort of use of, of visible evidence, and her idea is that uh, basically that um, the court the the official bodies and the the legal system can be sort of changed through sort of this unyielding. Um, you know, uh, use of, of evidence, um, and that can have these these sort of longer uh, longer lasting um, effects. Um, she says, you know, the, the, she talks about the idea that these effects um, are often less immediate or quantifiable. Um, but you know, uh, the more rights claims are made in the public sphere, the more new social actors, particularly those traditionally excluded from public discourse, will be enabled. Uh, it, to quote, develop new vocabularies of public claim making and to anticipate new forms of justice. Um, and so I'd like, I like to think about, you know, these, this form of, this use of militant evidence within these official bodies as having um, both what Benaby calls the jurist generative effects, but what I also call socio generative effects, that it, it brings about a culture of, of witnessing um, and of evidence gathering um, that kind of, uh, you know, spreads amongst uh, people on the ground. Right. And um, what are the main um, ideas um, presented in the second part? Prisons, Palestine, and interactive documentary. Um, so in that part um, is I, I look at that as sort of a, a companion to the first chapter. So in the first chapter, I talk about this idea of effective radicality, and in the second chapter, I develop this idea of affective radicality. So while in the first chapter we were dealing with you know sort of uh, official settings, um, in the second chapter we're dealing more with uh, audiences and engaging uh, audiences of sort of, of everyday people that are interested in, in um, engaging um, with these, these projects. So um, one of the projects is by Sharon Daniel and it's called Public Secrets um, that I look at. And in that project, there's actually, um, she didn't do any video recording because she was banned um, from doing so by the California prison system. But she was able to do audio recordings with a, a large variety of female inmates um, at a uh, correctional facility in Chowchilla, California. And um, they're able to sort of testify to their everyday realities of uh, this, this sort of dehumanization of, of being in prison. Um, and what Daniel does is creates this, this graphic, when, I'm, when I say graphic, I don't mean in the, in the grotesque way, but actual graphics, a, a graphic-based uh, interactive documentary that um, is, is textual. Uh, there's quotes, um, and um, she uses that um, to give us various insights into uh, the prisoners, but also and the inmates, uh, also into the um, the larger sort of discourses going on about um, about um, incarceration, uh, the prison industrial complex. Um, uh, how how sort of the prison industrial complex relates to American foreign policy. She also aligns it with, with theorists. Um, and so the prisoner and inmate uh, discourse is is aligned with all of these sort of academic and political theoretical discourses uh, to make this very sort of powerful case um, against the U.S. prison system. Um, interestingly, uh, the other one is uh, looks also at Bitsalem's work, um, but through the eyes of Zohar Kafir, um, a, a digital media artist um, who made an interactive documentary called Points of View, where she um, 
assembles a, a large amount of the BitSelem videos, um, digitally maps them onto uh, a map of Israel and Palestine, and then has various threads that you can follow. Um, it's really fascinating project, um, sort of amassing um, and curating um, a lot of this uh, militant evidence uh, that uh, Bitsalem has uh, accumulated. But I think the key idea there is the idea of affective radicality. And that's the idea that um, through these projects, which are, are quite affective in, in um, showing us the horrific uh, conditions that uh, Palestinians and, and women in, in prison are living in, um, that it helps to build political movements, uh, build uh, people, uh, viewers' own sort of militants uh, towards those political causes. Um, and so that sort of affect affective component married with the effective component is kind of see how I see uh, radicality uh, manifesting itself um, when we're talking about uh, militant evidence and video advocacy. What are the main ideas of the third chapter, Amateur Counter-Archives in Iraq? So in the third chapter, um, as I had mentioned previously uh, about the Independent Film and Television College in Iraq, that chapter looks at the work of the Independent Film and Television College um, as a counter-archival practice. Um, and it is read against the construction, the reconstruction of the state archive in Iraq, which was destroyed uh, during the, the war and occupation um, that, that began in 2003. And so you have this discourse in Iraq of, of accounting for Iraq's history and sort of building this, this new Iraq, um, this, this sort of historical and political discourse uh, connected with the official state archive um, that was destroyed. At the same time, you have um, this, this new uh, sort of burst of creativity um, amongst everyday people and artists um, who were very stifled under Saddam. Um, and, you know, obviously the war was, was horrific. Um, one of the, you know, the only, uh, you know, sort of positive things we could take from it would be that, you know, Saddam Hussein was, was uh, not in power after, um, afterward. Um, and so, you know, his, his grip on the country was loosened. Um, but I'd say, you know, everything else other than that, um, you know, kind of went, went to hell. But um, for artists, there was a, this moment of, of opening where they could express themselves and kind of um, talk about their daily lives, express their discontent with, with the occupation of the war. Um, and you you get a sense in these in these films of um, what I call a, a radical banality, um, and the idea that radicality doesn't always need to be um, you know um, you know visually stunning or different or um, aggressive or extreme in some way, but that radicality can be found in, in ordinariness, in, in humanity, in everydayness, um, and so. One of the things that I, I sort of read the, the films against, in addition to the building of the, the state archive, was the, the catastrophic visuality of the shock and awe campaign um, that the U.S. Um, uh, brought upon Iraq um, in the start of the war. Um, massive bombings, right? This idea of just basically shocking the population and Saddam Hussein into submission. Um, and that sort of catastrophic visuality, I mean, how do you compete against that, right? If you're creating some sort of a visual, uh, you know, art that is, is wants to intervene in that situation, like how do you how do you compete against visuality that is so large? And so this this reaction of a sort of a radical banality of, of of not even trying to compete with it, um, but just showing us this this glimpse of humanity, I thought um, was extremely powerful. Now let's talk about the, the last chapter, Syria and Abu Nadara. What are the main contributions uh, uh, we can find in, in this last chapter? Sure. Um, so with, with the final chapter, um, the oops, I would say that um, you know we had opened uh, earlier in the interview talking about uh, Rack, um, you know the film. Um, uh, we talked about Hama in, in 1982. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the, the interesting things about Syria is that um, they are deploying militant evidence both 
in Syria and then throughout the world um, for both sort of in-country reasons and then sort of uh, more outward or global reasons. So they assert this idea of a right to the image um, and they do this within a very holistic interpretation of uh, international human rights law. Um, and they like to uh, inscribe this notion of sort of a universal humanity or personhood into these images of, of war uh, ravaged landscapes. Um, they're also working to um, use their films and their films range are all short. Um, they range from um, sort of uh, humorous ones to more serious um, uh, sort of uh, testimonies uh, to mock advertisements. Um, so they're, they, they, they're a whole gamut of, of media that they've produced. Um, but they're trying to resist through this militant use of, of images and evidence, um, the, the oppression, censorship, and basically the domination of the visual field uh, that we see under the Bashar al-Assad regime. Um, they call, as I mentioned before, they call their films bullet films or sniper shots, and they, they are you know used in service of an ongoing uh, revolution. Um, they're also an example of what I call a digital imperfect cinema, um, uh, going off of Espinosa's uh, earlier notion of the 1960s of imperfect cinema, this is sort of a digital imperfect cinema. Um, so we have, you know, witness testimonials, montages, newsreel style satires, mock advertisements, interviews. Um, they also do remixed and recontextualized um, historical images. And these are all shared um, through their Vimeo site. Um, and I would say, you know, this forms a, a living archive of Syria in war and revolution. Um, but it also presents us an affectively radical version of Syria that challenges mainstream representations. And as I was mentioning before, depictions of Syrians as, as powerless victims. Um, and while it's also challenging the visual power and dominance um, of the Assad regime. And I think one of the key things about Abu Nadara to mention is that they're anonymous. Um, and they have a, a spokesperson who's not anonymous uh, named Sharif Kawan. Um, but otherwise, they're an anonymous group, and the, the anonymity gives them a lot of power um, to be able to operate um, and, and make these critiques um, without, um, you know, uh, ending up in prison. Now, uh, the book contains also um, a conclusion entitled Militant Evidence and the Future of Radical Documentary. Could you tell us a, a bit about it, please? Sure. Um, and so, you know, the conclusion is, is I'd say, relatively uh, short. Um, and I, I talk about um, a brief example um, from a recent Vice News uh, report on Myanmar's uh, Rohingya uh, genocide from 2020. Um, and one of the interesting things I, I saw in that report was um, when the correspondent, uh, Gianna Tabani, visits um, uh, the um, the uh, the Kutupalong extension site in Cox's Bazaar, which is the largest refugee camp in the world, um, she she speaks with the Rohingya people, um, and this is a, 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 a ethnic the Muslim uh, group um, that has been uh, forced um, out of uh, Myanmar, and they're all uh, holding the the, the Rohingya, uh, mostly men in the in the shot, are holding up their cell phones and tablets to her and they're showing her like, look at this, look at what happened to my family, look at what happened. And you know, the images are, are absolutely um, horrific. And anyone watching that would be, would wonder, what do you do, right? They have the evidence, it's horrible, right? These are, you know, uh, refugees that are disempowered, right? How, what do they do to make that turn into some sort of accountability? Um, and so, you know, as I talk about, um, you know, in the book, a partial answer comes from enmeshing those images um, in the proper um, ecologies for resistance, um, counter archives, accountability, solidarity, networks of legibility and uh, visibility. Um, and you know, if these groups are successful in, de in disseminating, you know, we could th we could see accountability outside of uh, the country in, in places like uh, the International Criminal Court, 
We could also see, you know, within uh, the country or amongst the refugee population, uh, you know, increased sort of uh, political militants, uh, um, uh, collective uh, collectivization. Um, and I think that this example of the Rohingya people shows us the importance of the radical use of, of digital documentary that has been taken up by amateurs, artists, and activists, and everyday people to document their struggles for rights, uh, representation, and justice. And I'd say, you know, it's important in the conclusion to underscore that militancy is understood in the book as, as nonviolent, but unrelenting, uh, an unrelenting method and practice in a world saturated by images and affective and effective appeals um, to action and empathy. Um, and I talk about the idea that, you know, often in in the history of radical documentary, the camera is analogized as a gun or a weapon. And while that is, I think, is, is interesting, you know, the camera is not a gun and in and of itself, it's wholly insufficient given the, the weapon that we, that we face. But the camera can be a type of weapon when the images it produces are deployed and understood within various affective and effective ecologies if they provide verification, forms of leg legibility and power um, in accumulation. And obviously those are produced uh, by people um, all over the world in great quantity. And I end the book by saying, you know, within, within an overwhelming image making environment, the fundamental question that the book asks and that I wanna know is, you know, can documentary media actually do anything to change the material conditions of ordinary people and gender justice or catalyze radical actions or movements? And I say, yes, it can. Um, if we act as humans to intervene in the regimes of violence that surround us to assert our values, voices, and agency, producing and deploying militant evidence in spaces of global crises. And, you know, I would I argue that the images, those images are the the unyielding binding agents um, of struggles, you know, throughout the world as we've talked about. And the force and the power of that evidence, we talked about, you know, those people showing Gianna uh, the, the images, the vice correspondent, mm -hmm. that the force and power of those is only going to be realized through networks and ecologies of legibility and visibility within the proper frames of reference and context. But it's a very, very, very slow process. And I think one of the, the contradictions here is that we have this instant gratification and ease that's, that's given to us by the network digital age. But if we're thinking about effectively and affectively um, uh, deploying militant evidence, it, it's a gradual, slow process, but it's an affirmative one that is practice of resistance um, and collective action. And I just want to read the last um, couple sentences of the book, if that's okay to finish. Um, I say that sure. ra radicality, the root of things, lies not in technology or platforms, but in people activating and helping other people fight the oppressive structures that engulf them. Technologies and platforms are just new tools and possible weapons. The accumulated militant evidence examined in radical documentary and global crises is wielded against the many vagaries of global crises in pursuit of a radically different, more just and equitable world. Well, that's that's beautiful. There's so there's uh, still hope, right? I think so. I think that's. I think I. I would say that um, while the book looks at extremely difficult global crises and and situations of of, of just um, horrible oppression, that there is a sense of hope amongst the people in those places because they're they're still producing. Um, this sort of this documentary media because they still have hope, right? They have hope that they can change things and, and things can get better. Um, I mean, I think global crises now, particularly with the pandemic feel, you know, just horribly overwhelming um, in a lot of ways. Uh, but I do think there is still there is still hope out there. And, and we see it um, through these these practices of resistance uh, throughout the world. Well, Dr. Watson, um, we've taken up a lot of your time, and uh, before we end our interview, I wonder if you could please tell us about what research projects um, you are working on now. 
Sure. Um, so yeah, I'm just um, sort of uh, transitioning um, into some new work, um, and a lot of this, the new work um, kind of uh, takes up a lot of the themes from radical documentary and global crises. Um, so I'm, I'm working on a, a, a follow-up book um, that's tentatively titled uh, "Radical Civic Media," and what I'm what I'm thinking about there is kind of taking from where I left off in radical documentary and thinking more about um, sort of the, the mechanics of how um, documentary is used in various situations to create spaces of, of uh, uh, civic spaces um, where, where uh, particularly in places like, like in Syria. So I think Abu Dara would be a good example of creating this sort of civic space. Um, and I want to think more about that idea. So um i published uh just recently i think less than a month ago um an article in media culture and society um called uh media mediated forensics and militant evidence rethinking the camera as weapon um and i'd say that is most uh sort of this transition between the militant evidence uh, project in the book and this sort of thinking more broadly about um uh, sort of the uses of civic media um and so, and that was a co-authored um, article with uh, Patrick Brian Smith, um, who is a, uh, a postdoc uh, fellow at uh, University of Warwick in uh, the UK. Um, and uh, it it takes up my idea of, of militant evidence um, with Patrick's idea of mediated forensics, um, and we look at the the research agency forensic architecture and how they are using militant evidence. Um, to uh, create these these new sort of forms and spaces uh, to consider uh, various forms of of, of, of evidence, um, and uh, they also work in 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 arts artist art spaces, galleries, uh, courts. Um, so um, creating these sort of civic spaces um, is something I'm interested in. Um, I'm also working on a. a um, uh, a chapter for an edited collection on um, the work of Equipe Media in uh, Western Sahara. Um, and that is also part of this, this larger sort of radical uh, civic media um, project uh, that I'm starting. So yeah, that's, that's kind of where my thinking is going. Well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to reading your, your new books and your, your new works. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, um, Professor Watson, for uh, talking with us today. All the luck and success for what is coming. Thank you, Gustavo. It's been my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was your host, Gustavo Gutierrez Suarez. See you on the next episode of New Books in Film. <laughs>